So we are in week four of this class, and uh, that means that we are going to start to um, talk about two steps each week for the next four, three weeks. I don't know. Anyway, I know I'm going to talk about step four and some about step five tonight, but uh, I wanted to um, do a meditation that comes from Thich Nhat Hanh. I think I had it as homework at some point. The Gatas, yeah. So, um, there's a, this is a practice that I like a lot. It was, it was my main practice for about five years, and it kind of catapulted my practice into a deeper concentration, which is something that most people really want and find is lacking in their practice, unless they've done a lot of retreats. So, um, when we j practice mindfulness of breath and sort of noting uh, that kind of process of sort of trying to be with the breath but then noticing whatever the distractions are and kind of observing how the mind wanders, uh, or emphasizing kind of the investigation and the mindfulness aspect of this practice, Although we still are doing a certain amount of concentration practice. So what distinguishes concentration practice as something kind of separate from mindfulness is that with concentration there's no attempt to really observe or kind of take in the bigger picture or investigate like, wow, I'm noticing that I'm having these kinds of thoughts a lot, or, okay, that sound is drawing me, I'll just listen to that. With concentration, we just try to stay with the single meditation object, the single thing that we choose to pay attention to. And if we notice the mind wanders, we just come back immediately. There's no sort of intervening, noting, or uh, processing. So something like a mantra is a concentration practice, or a visualization uh, practice. Um, and in fact, just a breath practice can be a concentration practice. And, and as I, I'll show you, we're going to work with the breath tonight, but with some particular phrases. The limitations of concentration practice are... Um, that there isn't this sort of um, educational element sort of, of, of really sort of studying our own mind and studying or, or how we respond to our environment and the habitual <laughs> thought patterns and, and emotional reactions. Uh, so we don't have that insight element to it. Um, and in fact, the Buddha, when he t told the story of his search for enlightenment, says that he, 
he went to two teachers. He had two teachers. The first one taught him these concentration practices called jhana, uh, J-H-A-N-A. And he taught, there are eight stages in this practice, and the, the Buddha says that this teacher taught him the first seven stages, and then that, that teacher then said, you know, you are just as much of a master as me at this, because the Buddha apparently was a very good student, not surprisingly. And the, so his teacher said, you can come and teach with me now. And the, but the Buddha wasn't satisfied with the experience of jhana because he said, when I'm in that state, when I'm in this kind of totally focused and somewhat blissful state where there's sort of no clinging, just a sort of state of, of uh, balance and freedom, when I'm in that state, that's great. But as soon as the bell rings or however they ended their meditation, you know, as soon as they come out of that state, I'm back in my usual mind. Want, desire, aversion, all the, you know, restlessness, all those hindrances come right back. So he said, you know, what I'm searching for is something that, that lasts, that isn't subject to impermanence. It isn't subject to arising and passing. So he then went to another teacher uh, and had the same experience where that teacher taught him then the, the final eighth jhana and that teacher was like, well, this is it. This is like as far as you can go on the path. And Buddha was like, no, I don't think so. You know, I think there's something more than this. So the, this is... Uh, this teaching has been taken by some people in the Theravadan Buddhist world to mean that, the, that we don't need jhana to get enlightened, which is, I don't, you know, I don't really have an opinion on it, or certainly don't have any personal knowledge. Um, but then when the Buddha talks about the night of his enlightenment, he says that the first thing he does is he goes through this practice of jhana. And then he turns his mind towards investigation. And so the, what some people interpret that to mean that he used the concentration that he developed in jhana to support his mindfulness. So he got very concentrated in one practice, and then he started to sort of practice more of a the way we, you know, practice here, the uh, noting practice or the sort of observing practice. Um, of course, I, I don't think we can know exactly what the Buddha was doing, uh, even though you know we have suttas that tell us stuff, but he doesn't even explain, there's even a lot of controversy today about what jhana means. So, uh, in any case, what, what it brings up is that, you know, when we come to our med own meditation practice, we want to really start to kind of investigate these elements of practice and see what works for us, what seems to click, what, what gives us a sense of letting go, what, what's, what, gets, what 
feels awkward. It doesn't really click for us. Um, and it's not, you know, we, it's not necessarily that we want to just do what feels good, because that, you know, if we're just following our preferences, you know, we might really kind of wind up in a kind of a cul-de-sac in our practice where it's like comfortable, but it's really not challenging us. So we, I guess I'd just say that, you know, you want to sort of experiment with different types of practice and, and try to have some understanding of these types of practices and kind of compare your experience with what the Buddha and other teachers say about them and then see, try, kind of try to judge your process and your, I guess, your progress without too much like, you know, grading yourself, but just seeing is this working or is this not working and see what works for you. Because ultimately, you know, you're the one who's meditating. There's, you know, it's, it's an internal experience and, and despite, you know, all the guided meditation and instruction we get, you know, the inner experience of meditation isn't really, you can't really capture it in words. It's not really, you know, it doesn't really fit into that kind of a box. Our mind is so kind of uh, nebulous and malleable. It's, and, and um, you know, constantly changing that to, to kind of go, okay, here's how I'm supposed to meditate. I'll do this. And then, you know, we all, all of us find out that, well, we can't really do it, you know. Uh, and so it's trying to figure out what works for us and, and what really works. And so what's the, when I look back over, you know, over more than three decades of meditation practice, I see that I've kind of gone through different forms that worked for a while and then seemed to kind of run out of steam and then I kind of got confused about what to do next and then I would maybe stumble into something and then and then sometimes something just got offered to me and it would click right away and I, so I, you know and that would work for a, a few years and then you know I just hear different teachings or sometimes the mind just goes places and and you realize oh this is my practice now I see and you just kind of follow it let the mind its own inclinations. Once, once the mind really starts to quiet down, it finds its own way. You know, um, this this idea. Uh, you know, I've been thinking more lately about just allowing uh, the mind to heal itself in the same way that the body can heal itself. There was an article in the New York Times yesterday about um, some form of farming. I don't know if anybody saw this. It's like a new form of farming that's like really uh, no, no plowing, which I'm like, How, what? I couldn't, I don't, I didn't read the whole article, but I glanced at it and it, it looks like what they're saying is they just like throw out seeds onto healthy but that what they they try to do is let the 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 earth itself kind of heal itself, and that talking about how plowing year after year after year disrupts the health of the earth, that the you know the um, 
organisms and the you know the worms and the, all the 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 uh, uh, you know uh, different uh, you know the nitrogen and all these different elements in the earth get kind of disrupted and that you just let it be. If you, the, and the and the guy literally said the earth heals itself if we give it time. And when I that was the line that hit me. I was like, yeah, right. It's like when I don't try to fix my mind, when I'm able to just quiet it and let it come into its own natural state, natural state of balance, it finds its own way. I don't have to, this idea that I'm meditating, like I'm going to say this to myself and do that, and I'm going to make my mind do this. It's like, not really. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, to planting a seed. Okay, plant the seed. Okay, grow. Come on, let's go. You know, let's pull you out of the ground. No, I mean, we, we participate in agriculture, but we don't make things grow. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess I'm, I'm trying to convey to you my philosophy about practice and so, and to help you to, you know, I think most teachers, meditation teachers, part of their goal is to, it's like parents, I want you to avoid the mistakes I made, you know, <laughs> learn from my experience. But, um, you know, that, that's kind of the point, uh, is, is for us to kind of hopefully have some development and progress together that, um, so given all that, kind of more or less talking about a almost laissez-faire meditation, I'm going to give you a very structured practice tonight. Uh, because it's just another form. But what I like about this practice is that it combines a concentration element. That is, it's focused on just being with the single thing that you're paying attention to with words that give it some color, some sort of uh, warmth. And so we use five phrases, uh, in, out, deep, slow, calm, ease, smile, release, present moment, wonderful moment. And those are with the in-breath and the out-breath, in-out, I mean, in-out, <laughs> calm, ease, I mean, or deep, slow, calm, ease, smile, release, present moment, wonderful moment. So you'll say the phrases as you're paying attention to the breath. So it's not that you're just like repeating the phrases like a mantra, but rather that you're feeling your breath and saying the words together. And what's I find effective about this is that it, it kind of takes up a lot of bandwidth in the mind to pay attention to the words and the breath at the same time so that there's less room for the mind to wander. And so the way I teach this as a, in uh, real time is that I'll have you work with one phrase at a time for a few minutes. When I do this on my own, I do five breaths with five phrases, and then I go back to the first phrase and keep cycling through the five phrases. Uh, Because that keeps me more on track when there's nobody guiding me. Uh, 
but you can do it either way. And this is in this book, which I didn't bring any tonight, so if you don't have it, um, you can either order it or wait till next week. Um, it's on page pages 217 and 218 in uh, the workbook. In any case, I will take you through this. So let's uh, settle into a comfortable posture. Gently closing the eyes. Finding that place of balance and stability in your posture. Relaxed and open. For this practice, I suggest you follow the breath at the nostrils. Start by just seeing if you can feel the distinct sensations of an in-breath and then the sensations of an out-breath. And as you feel those sensations, beginning with the most simple phrase, in, out. Just saying those two words with each breath, with each inhalation and exhalation. Repeating these silently in the back of the mind. Settling into the natural rhythm of breath. (coughs) In, out. Just letting the words and the sensations absorb your attention. You notice your mind has wandered. As soon as you notice that, come right back to the breath and the words. In, out.
relaxed, alert, present with the breath. Staying with the actual sensations of breath. Each inhalation actually has a whole series and variety of sensations. Each exhalation the same. Sometimes there's a space between breaths. Let the attention rest the same place. Nostrils, feeling whatever is present or not present. In, out. Moving to the next set of words, breathing in deep, breathing out slow, deep, slow. The breath may naturally deepen and slow, but we're not forcing that or making that happen. We're just staying with the sensations and repeating the words. Deep, slow.
the mind wanders, just coming right back. No commentary, no investigation, just letting go. Deep, slow. Let the words merge with the sensations of breath. Moving to the next set of words, breathing in calm, breathing out ease, calm, ease.
feeling the sensations of breath, repeating the words, calm, ease. Letting the words and the breath merge, filling the mind. Calm on the in-breath, ease on the out-breath. Calm, ease.
moving to the next set of words. Breathing in, smile. Breathing out, release. Smile, release. Feeling the breath and repeating the words. Smile, release. Letting go of thoughts. Staying with the breath and the words. Smile, release.
Moving to the final set of words. Breathing in present moment. Breathing out wonderful moment. Present moment, wonderful moment. Staying with the sensations of breath as the words move with the breath. Present moment, wonderful moment.
Now letting go of the words. Just being in the body, being awareness itself. Being present. Just noticing whatever's happening, the breath, the body, sounds, thoughts, watching the whole changing array of experience from a place of calm and clarity.
So what was that like? Was that helpful for anyone or difficult? Or what was your experience there? Yeah, and thumbs up, that's, that's it. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like they were in a totally different, and that it was the place I went back to felt deeper somehow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's what happens, potentially. Yeah. Very nice. Yes. I'm Eleanor. Um, thanks, Kevin. That was wonderful. Um, one of the things that brought me, that caused me to be interested in what you're offering is strong resistance that I experienced in the AA program to the language. And so I appreciate everything that you've offered with that. But what was interesting to me tonight in um, listening to your instructions and um, working with the words that you offered was I experienced that same resistance. (laughs) I kept thinking, these aren't really the words I want. I can think of some different words that might be better for me. And then I realized I'm doing the same thing here that I did there. So it's a major hindrance for me in terms of um, gaining benefit from the practice. But I appreciate, I really appreciate the way you offer this as a slow allowing us to internalize each. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, your first comment just made me think of the John Kabat-Zinn book, "Wherever You Go, There You Are." Yes. You know. And, um, yeah, and and I certainly have had plenty of experiences of resistance or aversion to the language or the way things are presented, you know, the various sort of spiritual language uh, can seem um, sort of superficial and, and not really to get to any, you know, too easy, you know, just kind of, just smile, smile, release. Or, um, but yeah, I mean, this this particular practice isn't necessarily, you don't have to take it as instruction. You know, you don't have to go deep, slow. It's just, the thing is that it, it can, these words can just work like a mantra that doesn't, doesn't have to have any meaning. You know, my first uh, Buddhist teacher used to say, you can use anything as a mantra. Coca-Cola works as a mantra, you know. Um, and then you get really thirsty and crave sugar, you know. But, um, but to just, yeah, repeat the words and then just as you say, you know, just do it. And then at some point they, do, they start to come in like the back door, you know, and they start to work on you subconsciously. And I think that's the most effective way to use this. If you're thinking, oh, I have to go deeper and slower. 
then you're just all doing it, you know, you're trying to control it. But just saying the words, and this again comes back to that kind of natural quality of the mind, that, and, and language does work on the mind. You know, I was listening to a Dharma talk actually on the ride over, how about that for being a good Dharma teacher, um, of uh, Ajahn Sumedho, a wonderful monk, and um, he was talking about uh, being on retreat with uh, one of uh, S.N. Goenka's students, and that Samedo said, you know, at that point, he said, this was 30 years ago, I, you know, I was very established in my practice, and I could sit for a couple hours without any pain, you know. But they would have certain sessions on these retreats where they would say, okay, for this hour we're going to do maximum effort. And he said, as soon as they said that, within five minutes he was in agony. Because <laughs> it was like, you know, yeah, I'm going to do it now. And uh, so I, I think as much as we can to let the pra- practice, you know, do itself. Um, Stephen Batchelor, who you may be familiar with, has uh, a sort of an obscure book called The Faith to Doubt, which has some wonderful stuff in it. They're just kind of essays. You know, they're not really connected. But in one of them, he talks about how we have turned meditation into this mechanical exercise that's supposed to give these certain results. And this is really again, sort of the mindfulness industry now, you know, do this and you're going to get that, you know, which is, of course, what everybody wants, you know, just pay your money and get your whatever. What's that line? You pay your money, you get your something. Anyway, somebody will know. Um, But, and he says, that's not meditation, you know, it's not a mechanical process, it's not, you know, Follow your breath, come back to your, you know, when your mind wanders, come back, label it, you know, okay, you're doing it right. That's, he says there's something, he calls it a meditative attitude, something that's organic, that we've kind of lost. And I see all forms of practice as just ways that are trying to um, trigger and, and incline and guide our minds into that organic place. It isn't the words themselves or the breath or anything that we do in meditation that is meditation. Meditation is an organic process that our minds know how to do. They just have to be given the opportunity. Um, and, And we just create the circumstances. So meditation... Uh, uh, all the things that we do, like having a quiet place, sitting still, trying to focus the mind on one thing, trying to let go of distractions, those are all things that are creating conditions for the mind to go to that place. And, And once you're there, there's no meditate, there's no efforting, there's no, and, and it starts to lose form. And you can bring in form if you want, and then you can play with it. I mean, you know, you look at some of the things that Tibetans do where you, you know, you build the whole tanka in your mind, you know, you do that with your mind, you know, you create these images. But, you know, that's, once you're absorbed, then you can do things 
if you want. Um, I'm not sure how that leads to enlightenment, but I don't know. I'm literally. I don't mean that. I it doesn't. I just don't know how it, how it does. But uh, so, yeah. You mentioned you mentioned you had a strategy for how to do the gatapo meditation when you're by yourself. Yeah. So you just go in, out, deep. Well, calm, ease, smile, please. Present moment, wonderful moment. In, out, deep. Smile. Did you actually say out loud? No. If I did it silently, you wouldn't know what I was saying. <laughs> At least most people would. The psychics would know. I know. So it's. I think I described that in here. Um, yeah. Yeah, and um, so uh, I actually prefer that way because if I'm alone and I'm just working, with, I'll forget. I'll space out and I'll be like, "Oh wait, I'm like, where was I? Or you know, how long have I been on this? How long? Or I'll be like, is that long enough? Should I switch now? You know." So when I'm leading it, I kind of glance, I try to make it about five minutes on each one, and I kind of glance at the clock every once in a while. I go, okay, that's about four minutes. Let me wait, you know. And but when I'm on my own, I like to just go through the five, and it, it's very absorbing. I find it, it, it more absorbing that way. Yes. Um, by the way, thank you for for guiding us with the meditation because I'm kind of new to the whole practice as well. I'm just curious. Do you ever just meditate and not set a timer and just? I never set a timer. I don't like timers because they make noise. Um, but I'm a professional, you know. So you know, um, you know. I know a lot of people like that. You know, I, it doesn't bother me to open my eyes and look at the clock. And usually, what I do is I sit down and I have a clock on my altar, and I look at it and I go, "Okay." I'll go for 40 minutes, or I'll go for 30 minutes, or I'll, let me see if I can sit for an hour, or whatever. And, I, and it's partly based on how much time do I have right now, and where's my energy at, because like anybody, I mean, I have my good days and my bad days, so sometimes I'm, I'm going to sit down, I'm like, I try, for me, I try to sit a minimum of 30 minutes each day. So, but I know that I benefit when I stretch it longer, so it Anyway, I'll just, uh, and I can kind of feel it, you know. <coughs> um, you kind of get so you can sense it. And there, and I actually find that, and I think if you, if you practice for a few years, you'll notice this, um, that there are kind of stages. Like at 20 minutes, there's usually kind of a shift. And, you know, you kind of feel like deepenings. And then I just, I just trust myself that I kind of go, oh, yeah, I'm just done, you know. But of course, that's a risky approach for, especially for someone who's new to practice, because you know you're gonna, you're, if you're, you know, restless or whatever, you're gonna have a hard time. 
so, so I, there's nothing wrong with the timer. But why do you ask that question? And why do you let me go on and on talking? <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm just curious because I felt when I was sitting here for however long it was, I, thought, I just thought it was a half hour, but um, it's like um, time feels like it's going slower in a sense in my mind. You know, my mind races like crazy all the time, and I've tried to achieve this state of calm. And, and, oh, um, that's too bad. On my own. And yeah. <laughs> Nothing and like trying to achieve simple. calm. <laughs> Right away, you're in conflict. And you're not going to get calm when you're trying to achieve. I have to get calm. Let's go. Come on. It's like maximum effort to meditate. Stop trying. There's nothing to achieve. Calm isn't an achievement. You know, it's, you know, it's something that happens. Sorry. I didn't mean to be mean. I didn't take it as a okay, good. Sometimes I say things and it comes across. But yeah, you know, calm is a natural result of uh, creating the conditions and having the conditions. That is to say, there's a certain amount you can do and then there's a certain amount that's just like, what kind of a day are you having? What's going on in your life? You know, if there's all kinds of, you know, worries and problems, you know, no matter how, how much you try to create the conditions yourself, the things that you can control, it's probably going to be hard to get calm. Uh, so, and I, that's kind of how I find, I, I find with my practice that, there are some days when like everything is just like kind of easy and I mean every time I meditate I'm creating the conditions for that by being in a quiet place sitting still trying to bring my attention back to the present moment and then the rest of it is how am I actually feeling what's the energetic state that I'm in what's what are the mental concerns I have right now. And most of the time, there's so much stuff going on in my emotions and my mind that I don't get terribly calm. I don't know, most of the time. Most is a strong word, but a lot of the time. So I just sit, and then like I'll touch it, you know, and I'll be like, ah. Oh. And then blah, blah, blah. And then just kind of go back, yeah, you know. But uh, I always feel better afterwards. Something, I, I just one other thing I wanted to mention because it's uh, important to this, pra this particular practice. Concentration and energy are kind of two things that have to work together. Mm -hmm. So when you get, when the mind starts to get very still and you get very relaxed, is a tendency to fall asleep. This is a practice where you can fall asleep easily if you don't have much energy. So you need a good amount of energy to sustain the concentration. But if there's too much energy, then you can't concentrate. So uh, the, uh, this is one of the things that you'll see as you work with this, that you'll uh, oftentimes it'll either be, you know, you're doing it, you're in like deep, slow, and you're 
you know, you're falling out, or else you're just like deep slow, deep slow. What was I thinking? You know, and, and you're so. I actually think that energy, and it's such a vague word, I know, but I'll say physical and mental and emotional energies are more than anything the determining factors of whether we can have a calm and clear meditation. And, and to some extent we don't control them, but we try. So when you do yoga or qigong or, you know, you, uh, the other external things that we do, uh, I don't know what else there is, but I'm sure there's stuff, then we're kind of helping to create those conditions. Uh, yes? So, um, that was interesting. There's definitely um, certain words that seem to work better for me, but I thought the words would be distracting because every time somebody introduces a word meditation, then I get wrapped, I get wrapped in forgetting the words. No. And, um, but I just, if I forgot, I just let it go. And yeah. what I could see was that, because I have asthma, and um, how much I unconsciously control my breath. Mm-hmm. And it was finally like in those words, it was like letting go a little more, letting mm-hmm. go a little more, letting, and relaxing a little more. And then there'd be like a deep inhale from within and let go. And it dropped to a lower level of mm-hmm. letting go. And finally, when it had really just surrendered to what my body wanted to do, it felt so peaceful mm. and calm. And, mm. um, and then all of a sudden, my head, there was that distinct awareness that I'm not my body. Like, somehow it clicked really big that, you know, that, that all those components, energy, breath, body, but we're so conditioned to thinking this touch is what we are. Mm-hmm. And when the more you can feel it from the inside breath, the less I believe that like this mound of flesh is what I am. Yeah. But it, there's something about your voice though that does help me calm down, which is ironic. I mean, if you say you're not that calm, it's very calm. Oh no, I didn't mean when I'm when I'm guiding meditation. I, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel very, I like to guide meditation because I listen to myself. And then I do what I say. I should do it more at home. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's weird to do it. And, and you know, I, I know some teachers don't try to meditate when they're giving instructions. But I, I do, uh, partly because I don't want to waste a good period of time when I could be meditating. So, uh, you know, I say the words and then I try to do it. And, uh, I, I, th- I think that that comes across. Yeah, so it becomes something of a transmission. And a lot of times my guided meditations are really um, riffs where I'm just, I'm not even, I don't have a plan. I just follow just an intuitive Thing. But this one, of course, was very structured. Um, there's something else you said that I wanted to say something about. Oh, and, and what Eleanor said, too, you can use your own words. I mean, these, this comes from Thich Nhat Hanh, and I, th- I find it useful. It's, but it's just the same as like with loving kindness. Use words that work for you. 
the thing is, watch if it's like, oh, no, I don't like that. Let me do this, and then you do that for a while. Oh, no, that's not quite right. Let me try this, you know, because that can become another trap, like trying to get the perfect words. You know, they're just words. Right. I think of them as getting me to centered and balanced. And then I think of them as a description, but not in like a dictionary description, but <laughs> moving into my body, what my body is doing. And I can mm-hmm. breathe whether I want to or not. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think, oh, if I can, because sometimes it's a deep breath and sometimes it's slow. And then I think, okay, and then it just, I don't think of it so much as a word like an instruction as just a reflection of what's I'm settling into. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, well, no, and I, then I, it's, I. And then it's a relaxing, it's the re- release. Yeah, the yeah. And yeah, I think of it as like that inclining the mind, that idea. It's not that you're telling it what to do, you're just kind of like. Look over here, you know, <laughs> try this, and, and letting it then just go there. Um, it's one of the things that the Buddha says about a concentrated mind, he says it's malleable. That is, it's, it can be shaped. So this is one of the things that as, as we start to meditate and get to deeper places, we can... We can suggest things to the mind, and the mind will do it. You know, you can say, you know, release or peace or love or something, and it, and you just that arises, and it's quite quite interesting. And in fact, this is one of the ways that uh, cult leaders control people is by getting them calm, and then you know, tossing in stuff that it's called brainwashing right so you're really in the in this kind of practice you're you're um getting to a very open place and it's it's a it's a, a vulnerable place in certain ways it's a you know it's a very uh, delicate place uh, and that's why you ha- actually have to you want to be careful with the things you put in there that's again why kind of maximum effort doesn't I don't like that either. It's like, don't, you know, that's very aggressive. And, and uh, you know, it's just interesting how, I mean, we all, you know, we, we react to words mentally, but we also react to them on some other level. Even though words are just, you know, symbols, but they're so ingrained in us that they, then kind of work on this back doorway in us. Uh, it's one of the reasons why right speech is so important, why Buddha says not to use harsh speech. And, and we all know how, like, just, you know, you say something and the, the words can be, wow, uh, there's more power to them than just their literal meaning. Um, so... 
it looks like we're, we're moving along and using time uh, in some sense. And I, I don't want to... Um, um, I don't want to take a break, but if you need to, um, just uh, do so as we're, you know, at your own leisure or pace. Um, but it's, we've already just have like 45 minutes left, so I want to um, I want to move into talking about uh, step four and step five and and. Uh, you know, in this in this Buddhist context, uh, um, I think I I might have mentioned this last week, but I'll, I'll reiterate it that that the connection between step three and step four is something that kind of I, I started to get curious about. What was the logic of turning your will and your life over over to the care of God, and then? doing a searching and fearless moral inventory, especially since there was this idea that, well, if I've turned it over, why do I now have to get into this messy work of, of uh, inventory and self-examination that often seems like self-criticism? You know, and what, what I've come to, the way I've come to understand that uh, transition is that step three is really setting an intention as much as anything. It's a decision to live differently, to try to live differently, to try to live in harmony with the values in the Buddhist sense of the Dharma, but we could just say in, in, term, in harmony with spiritual values. And that, that step four kind of the reason we have to do step four is that when we try to live in, with, in this new way, we find that our habit and who we have been and the life that we've created, so the karmic effects of our, the way we've behaved internally and externally, has made it impossible to actually turn it over. That, I, that maybe in step three, even though we say we're turning it over, we realize that we can't exactly do it right away, that, that, that the, these habitual patterns are so deeply ingrained that they need to be uprooted before actual turning it over can happen, before we can really change our way of being. So steps four through nine, and particularly four through seven, I think are this process of of kind of going, okay, this is the karma that I've created and I need to so- somehow find some way to uncreate it or to uh, let go of enough stuff that I can uh, live differently. Now, the, I think the 12-step work tends to focus more on, mostly on behavior, things that we've done, actions we've taken, And Dharma work and meditation work and mindfulness work focuses more on the mental side of it, the habitual thought patterns, the emotional reactive patterns. And I think both of these are equally important. We we need to behave differently. Uh, You know, recovery implies a, 
uh, different ways of behaving. But if we don't really engage and, and uproot the internal poisons, then it's, the external isn't going to really bring resolution or healing or true recovery, I don't think. Uh, so to me, the, the Buddhist part of step four is the, the meditative inventory. And this can take different forms. I mean, the, well, that's, I guess that's an exaggeration. Because, you know, the, I do talk about, and, and I've written quite a bit about, using the five precepts as a form of inventory. But in terms of, but I think that's very similar to the type of inventory that the 12 steps imply and suggest in the guidelines. I mean, if you look at the, you know, Bill Wilson's commentary on the 12 steps, when he comes to step four, he talks about the seven deadly sins. And, it, you know, they're very similar to like precepts and, and hindrances. But... Uh, Again, it's, I think, more, well, um, I don't, I don't, I, I'm realizing that I'm about to say something that isn't true, so let me try not to do that. Because uh, the seven deadly sins actually are not so much external, are they? I mean, uh, they're, you know, lust and jealousy, and I don't even know them. But, uh, and gluttony, sloth, yeah. Uh, oh, that's, I guess that's external, but, but that's, that's one of the five hindrances. So, in any case, let me see if I can stay on some kind of a track here. What we've been doing the last few weeks in terms of, you know, noting desire and aversion, noticing thoughts, noticing the feelings that comes up, this is all, to me, a form of inventory. And what what I think this practice encourages us to do is objectively look at what's in our minds, what's in our hearts, and try to let go of the unskillful and try to cultivate the skillful. Um, so this is a kind of retraining. But when we take so, so let me talk about the five hindrances. The five hindrances are desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. You could say that's seven, but right? sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry are considered single ones. If we sort of, as we meditate, observe these qualities, so noticing, oh, I'm you know, fantasizing about my vacation, desire. And then we see how that feels to do that. We see the discomfort or the agitation that comes with that. Then we come back to the breath. We let go. And each time we let go of a desire, don't act on it, we weaken it. And we train the mind to stay more present. So as we practice, we start to look at, okay, 
what are my tendencies? Or under what circumstances do certain things arise? So aversion. Aversion is a great one, the second hindrance. It takes so many forms and it you know, it shows up in so many different circumstances. You know, you wake up cranky or you you have an ongoing conflict with your boss or when you're driving you just get irritable with other drivers or you just have a negative view. You pick up the paper in the morning and you just see all the negative stuff going on in the world. All these ways that our mind gets triggered and our emotions get triggered. And when we start to apply some awareness to that, we start to see what our own part is in creating that discomfort. That we actually have a choice how to react to those things. That, and this is one of the things that we develop through practicing mindfulness. When, when we do meditation practice in a formal way, we see that it's possible to have a thought or a feeling without being attached to it. We see that, oh, I'm having that, wait, oh, and then we come back to our breath and the feeling or the thought might still be there, but it's like, it's not us anymore. It's just a thing that's happening in awareness. So when we realize that clearly, you know, through practice, we can then start to take that into our lives. And this is one of the purposes of practicing formal meditation so that we can very carefully parse out and just see how the mind and our particular mind works and that we can practice this letting go process so that then we can expand from just the formal experience out into our daily lives, so that whether it's in traffic or at work or in relationships or in just our own, you know, like reading the paper that we can kind of go, oh, wow, I'm really getting triggered. Oh, here I go again, you know. That we can, we can start to have some separation, disidentification, right? This is one of the, the keys to, to dharma, is disidentifying. Not seeing it, not seeing... First of all, not taking things personally and then not seeing things that we experience as being not uh, that things don't have to be this way, that there are choices. That, and, that, and, and again, this close observing of how things arise helps us to start to see our own part, to see that moment of choice to, oh yeah, I really want to get into that resentment, you know. Uh, I mean, that, you know, yesterday for me it was the, you know, the 47 senators. So the, there's a hashtag uh, apparently on Twitter right now, hashtag 47 traitors or something like that. It's like the tr- number one trending thing, you know. And I was like, yeah, rah, 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 you know. And then you find yourself in this state Right? Like, uh, I made this choice, you know. I, that's a trigger for me. And, you know, I wanted to really crank it up. And it's like, oh, okay, no, I don't have to go. I can let go of that. And so the Dharma helps us to see 
that all of this stuff is just greed, hatred, and delusion. Right? Like I've talked about this. You know, you pick up the newspaper. Oh, an article on greed. Oh, an article on hatred. Oh, there's more delusion. You know, and and uh, you know, it's pro I projected out that it's all them out there, but then of course I see that I'm doing the same thing. That even the projection itself is an expression of that. So that whole attitude of mindfulness is one of, of inventory. I've all, you know, once I started to look at this connection, I started to see that really inventory is exactly what our meditation is. It's a, it's a review or an exploration of what's going on in my body and mind. The... And, you know, the Buddha gives us this form to do it. So I've talked about greed, or desire, aversion, sloth and torpor. You know, very common in meditation. Uh, I'm sure some of you experienced it tonight. In fact, I know that some of you did because I opened my eyes and observed you. Um, you know, the... One of the things that I realized, when I, particularly when I was writing One Breath at a Time, was you know, I always took the hindrances as just being about meditation, but they're really about our lives. And they, they are really applicable to addiction. Obviously, desire is a big problem with addicts and aversion, you know. I want to feel good. I don't want to feel bad. I've got to have that. I've got to get rid of this. But sloth and torpor is an interesting one, too. It's actually on the list of triggers, the classical list of triggers, halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. So, torpor? What? What is torpor? I'm sorry, that's a good question. Torpor is just like a dullness of mind. You know, you just... Uh, it's a great word, but we don't use it much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Biologists too. Yeah. And how do they? What? Reptiles in the shade. Okay. They're in like torpor. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's a good image for it. Just. Um, and it, what it's trying to distinguish is that there's a mental and a physical component to this. Uh, and I could be, uh, actually, torpor might be the physical. I, I'm never really sure. But there, one of them is like your body gets tired and you, know, and you get sleepy, and the other is your mind gets dull. So sloth and torpor is trying to point to that. Maybe sloth is the mental part. Somebody should ask the Buddha. Um, but that dullness of mind, that's when we're really susceptible to our cravings, you know, uh, and to our, um, you know, addictive tendencies. That it's interesting to me that, well, alcohol, you know, masks fatigue, and a lot, a lot of drugs do. I mean, cocaine does. <laughs> uh, but alcohol masks fatigue. So, you know, TGIF. Let's go to the bar, 
right? You're exhausted from a week of work, so you go and you have a couple shots, and you're stimulated temporarily right? until the depressant part of alcohol kicks in. But um, we, you know, we use a lot of substances, and not just substances, but behaviors to, and even and even mental states to stimulate ourselves uh, to give us energy. And partly that's, you know, depression, which is one of the you know common qualities of addicts. You know, is a low energy state, so we want to stimulate ourselves. Big cup of coffee, or uh, you know, loud music, or uh, you know, driving fast, um, getting into a fight. You know, stimulate yourself, crank up the energy. Um, you know, the, uh, it, it's amazing how uh, you know television is a stimulant, right? You, it kind of it's it's both a stimulant and a sedative in a weird way. It's like it's it dulls your mind, but it gives your bo- body just enough. Like you know, you can just sit there. It's like and, and it's one of the things that that uh, I guess psychologists are talking about about how you know the risks of of going to bed with your screen. And it doesn't have to be a TV, it's any screen, right? And you just let that, that, I don't know how that works, if there's actually some physical element or it's just the light or whatever, but... Um, so, you know, we really start to see how these things are not just theoretical meditation things, that they, they really, you know, uh, have an effect on our, our recovery. The same with, so the, the other side of sloth and torpor is restlessness and worry. Again, a physical and a mental component. Uh, what meditator hasn't experienced restlessness? I mean, that's, you know, it's that when's he going to ring the bell feeling. And, and this is long enough. Then I can't sit still. I hear that from a certain percentage of people. Um, that they can, they feel like they can't meditate. Well, I can I can meditate better when I'm running, but when I sit still, I just get so restless. What is that energy? What is that? Uh, I, that's actually a rhetorical question because I don't really have an answer for it. But I I would just say it's energy, you know, and and with this practice. Rather than, uh, you know, there are practices the Buddha suggests for calming restlessness. But again, that gets into this kind of conflict with how things are. There is this energy. Oh, I'm going to suppress it. Well, that can very easily get into just this, uh, another attempt to control. So what's more helpful to me is to just go, oh, let me just feel this energy. So the image of surfing, the, there's a, a meditation called Surfing the Urge for, with Desire, but I think Surfing the Restlessness is a really good one too. Just feeling waves of energy and just sitting with them and just as though you're riding on this wave, giving it a lot of space. You know, one of the qualities of restlessness is a feeling of being confined. It's kind of claustrophobic. Uh, that's why I want to move, I want to get up. But 
if you can just say, oh, actually, I'm not confined. There's plenty of space for my mind. And you give your mind all this space, then there can be a sense of, oh, okay, that's not a problem. Seven deadly sins tie in, you know, for me, they all end up at the bottom, which is fear. Fear, 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 anxiety, mm -hmm. fear, hundred forms of that. Mm. And um, restlessness, you know, is like, is that ultimate knowledge that you're out of control, mm. really, that you're powerless. Yeah. So you're just like trying to sort of, you know, it's like the body's way actually probably is trying to lead you out of the head and into some other... It's kind of a fight-or-flight energy happening, yeah. No, I think that's true. And, and um, uh, Can I pass a question? I, um, okay. The, the mind... Uh, my mind always seems to want to do something. Yeah. And there are times when I feel like when I'm counting breaths or doing the exercise, I might placate it, mm -hmm. you know? Right. And I guess I am. Yeah. So I can just stay there. Right. I mean... Say, give me something to do. What, then, yes. Then it gets tired. One of the... Right. I mean, one, one of the thoughts I have had as I've reflected on how meditation works is that the techniques are all ways to just keep me busy while my mind figures out where it needs to be. Just, um, the, it, you know, the, that, that wished for, um, you know, to do something. It's, it's very much that instinctive need to be on alert and, um, That, you know that I, I talk about this a lot, but the, that we are programmed through evolution to be thinking, because thinking is our main survival tool. You know, whereas you know, for a, a, most animals, they have other more physical survival tools. You know, like teeth or claws or speed or, or the ability to hide. Humans, our main survival tool is the capacity to anticipate danger based on things we remember. And, and therefore, we, because that's our main survival tool, our mind constantly wants to be anticipating danger based on things we remember. Yeah, yeah, we're sharpening our claws all the time. And, of course, at this point in human evolution, most of the time we're not in danger, but our minds don't know or care about that because they're so deeply programmed to behave like this. So we have to kind of give them the space, say, it's okay, relax, don't worry, everything, you're safe. Yeah, but I won't even get put in people. Yeah, okay. Just gonna follow the breath right now. You're okay. And so we see that uh, 
this is, again, not personal. It's not about me. It's not like I'm a bad meditator or I like to think a lot, you know. Like when people say, well, I, I have a really hard time meditating because I think so much. And they're looking at me and I'm thinking, so they don't think I think a lot? Are they saying I'm dumb? Like, I'm just like this blank slate. Huh. I'm a really good meditator. Huh. That's not the way it is, you know. Everybody thinks a lot. And the, 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 what happens is that when people start to try to meditate, they realize how much they think. And, and when they hear the meditation instructions and they can't do it, the next thought is, it must be my fault. Probably the, the teacher and everybody else here has no problem with this, but I just think so much that I can't do it. Well, I, I th- pretty sure that's true of every normal human being, that we think too much to meditate. So it's a training, and it's an ongoing training, just like you go to the gym, you build up some muscles, great, I've got it now. You stop going to the gym, you lose the muscles. Same thing with meditation. If I go on a month-long retreat, I'm, I build up that capacity to be present, to be concentrated, and then if I stop meditating for a couple of months, it goes away. So, uh, yeah, it's a training, and it's an ongoing training. And, and uh, I don't know how I got there. You were saying words. So one of the things that I find interesting, I get to sit up here and talk about the things I find interesting, so I hope you find them interesting, is that when I observe my mind and I notice that sometimes it wants to, um, one of the things that, that I'm, that it does is it it wants to know so the so desire one of the main forms of desire is the desire to know so notice all the thoughts you have that are about trying to figure something out and of course we want to know because that gives us a sense of control and safety okay i know what's going to happen next or i know i understand you know i understand i know what torpor is Okay, like, you know, you wanted to, like, what's torpor? Like, when you hear a word and you don't know what it means, and there's this, like, need that comes up in us. Oh, I need, I need to know what that is. Just, and when you can just start to notice, oh, that's just desire. It's just another form of desire. Wanting to know. So this is all part of this meditative inventory. But I want to turn it around a little bit now in the remaining minutes and talk about the other side of inventory that's often overlooked, which is the positive inventory. Because one of the effects of doing inventory can be a negative feeling about ourselves. So if we aren't being really objective and just going, okay, this is just human behaviors, but it's like, I did this, I do that, I'm having that thought, we get this cloud over us. 
And as I said, many addicts are prone to depression. So if, you're, if you tend to get depressed and you're, all you're doing is negative inventory all the time, you're just reinforcing that. It's called rumination, I learned when I read a book about depression. So one of the things that I think is really important to balance this process of inventory is the positive inventory. And there's different ways that this can be done, just reflecting on our positive qualities, reflecting on our, the positive, our positive actions. Um, you, one of the things the Buddha suggests that we reflect on is the seven factors of enlightenment. And I have that, all these things are in step four in this book. The seven factors of enlightenment are the elements of our mind and body that need to be brought to the level of fruition that allow us to have this breakthrough in consciousness called enlightenment. So one of the things you can do is look at that list, which is like mindfulness, tranquility, joy, investigation, concentration. Uh, <laughs> see, this is why I'm... Equanimity and... Uh, did I say joy? Yeah. Oh, darn. The seven factors of enlightenment. Oh. The seven things that... No. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. So just to, you know, one of the things that I suggest in here is just to go through this list and look at, oh, which of these are you know, really growing in me, and which of them could I maybe develop more? And they manifest particularly in our meditation, but they also manifest in our lives. You kind of, and uh, so that's one way of kind of doing a more positive inventory. What are the, because these are all positive qualities we're trying to cultivate. But I also have a more general kind of uh, positive inventory looking at what are my intentions? So just seeing that, okay, my intentions are positive. These are the things that I'm trying to bring about in my life. Um, my relationships, kind of looking at the, the good things that happen in my relationships where, where, my, where I've manifested positive things. Um, you know, the way, ways you've uh, done good work in your lives, whether it's um, you know, in your employment or whether it's as service. And then just personal qualities that you have that are positive. So this is, for many people, harder to do than the, you know, moral inventory of this 12 steps. Like, what's good about me? You know? um, but mindfulness and the 12 steps are really about honesty, you know. They're not about beating ourselves up. They're about what is true. So if we overlook the positive, then we're not being fully honest with ourselves. And the fact is that if you are here doing this work, you have some very positive qualities. One of the things that the Tibetans talk about is the preciousness of encountering the Dharma and that to even encounter the Dharma and then to be drawn to it and interested in it shows 
that there's very positive karma. You know, of course, they talk about it in terms of lifetimes. But even if we just think of it as in this life, think of all the things you could be doing tonight, <laughs> for instance. Or think of all the things that other people are doing right now that are unskillful or wasteful, destructive, you know, mindless, addictive. <coughs> and here you are trying to cultivate these positive qualities. You know, the fact that you are here suggests that there is goodness in you. You wouldn't be here if there weren't that goodness. A very powerful, very, really manifesting in a very strong way, not just like a peripheral thing, but very much like right here, right now. You know, something very good in you has brought you here. You know. It doesn't mean that there aren't other negative qualities in you. And this is one of, one, of, one of the things, again, that I think is very hard for us, and maybe it's a, another kind of human quality that we, we want things black and white. We want to be able to say, oh, this is how I am, you know. But, you know, we're complicated. Uh, uh, Whitman has that great line about, do I contradict myself? Very, very well, I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. I love that line, I contain multitudes. We all... Each of us contains multitudes. And how, you know, it's hard to just hold that. Much easier to go, well, this is how I am. This is the way I am. I'm a good person. I'm a bad person. Whatever, you know. Uh, but to say, oh, you know, I have all these qualities. And then the Buddha says, yeah, you have all those qualities, but none of them belong to you. <laughs> none of them actually define you. None of them is you. Wow. Now we're really getting into some territory that's confusing and, and a little scary. I mean, it, this, you know, this idea of kind of letting go of identity. This is who I am. Okay, I have these good qualities, I have these bad qualities, but that's just who I am. Well, what if it's not? You know, what if they're just things that are appearing and disappearing moment by moment? There are these threads of karma, of energy, of habit. This, you know, this is why for me, Buddhism and the Buddha Dharma is the most sophisticated religion and why it it really challenges us. Uh, you know, it, it, it kind of brings us back to some of what um, Buddha Dasa, what I was talking about from Buddha Dasa last week, that, you know, people educated in the modern way will reject um, these theistic models, these very... Uh, closed models that it really takes um, a pretty evolved kind of consciousness 
an intelligence to, and, and, and I guess uh, a certain um, healthiness of ego, to let go of ego. Right? Uh, there's that phrase that you, know, you have to have an ego before you can let go of an ego. Uh, you know, if you, if you are just trying to, oh, just let go of everything, it's, you know, and you're not really mature enough to do that, that's, again, a, a personality that gets drawn into more cult-like stuff because there's no real clarity or groundedness in it. And it's another one of the paradoxes that we have to be kind of together before we can let go of I. Uh, you know, we have to kind of have a sense of, I, I know who I am, and then let go of that. Wow. Uh, Yeah. When you let go, yeah. it can send anxiety, yeah. you know, That's right. personified, like the more, less you know what you are. Yes, and, and this, is, this is one of the risks uh, of this practice, especially intensive practice. If you, if you go too deep into it without the, the whole, you know, external and internal support then uh, there can be a kind of dissociation that happens or a kind of uh, breakup of, of the ego without a sort of um, way of holding it all. So there, it's like boundarylessness without a center. Um, you know, when we look at the traditional uh, way that uh, people followed a path like this or any of the the deeper or the mystical traditions there are stages uh, of of uh, teachings that you receive and in stages of initiation um, which was meant to protect the practitioner from going you know, off the deep end, <laughs> the quick, you know, if I'm going too far too fast. And one of the problems we have in the Western Buddhist community is that because we're so greedy and we want it all now, we've lost those protections. And like anybody can kind of sign up to go on the two-month retreat up here. I mean, they, you know, they a little bit, uh, you know, have some guidelines, but not that much. And, uh, and so some people really have these dark night experiences. Uh, I, I, that's not really the note I want to end the evening on. <laughs> Watch out, you're going to freak out. Actually, how does Buddhism hold the idea of integrity given there are these multitudes within us? That's what the five precepts are all about. Yeah. The, and this is uh, again comes back to the Buddha talking about intention 
you know, there isn't this, the five precepts are not commandments. They're not even exactly rules. They are guidelines by which to set our intention with the understanding that we will break them and then we will, you know, uh, admit that and then we'll come back to our intention. It's actually one of the things that I like about growing up as a Catholic, the ritual of confession, even though it you know, lost a lot of its juice, and certainly as a child, somehow sending a, you know, an eight-year-old into a dark little cubicle to talk to this scary person on the other side of a screen and tell him what you had done wrong wasn't that helpful. <laughs> Although it always did feel really good afterwards, I have to admit. But, um, but the principle is the same. It's... N- you know, we, you know, in in Christianity, we talk about it as sin. In Buddhism, it's just breaking the precepts. You know, and it's there's not sort of this black mark on your soul, thankfully. Uh, but it's it's the same principle, and it is a spiritual principle that, that you know we make mistakes that we're human, that we are all sinners or that whatever we are all going to make mistakes, and and that. Uh, we can be forgiven. Uh, in Buddhist, in traditional Buddhist teachings, and from what the Buddha said, there are certain things that we don't really get forgiven for, particularly killing our parents. That's, uh, see, and it's interesting, you know, again, one of the things that Westerners don't, most Westerners who are interested in Buddhism don't realize is that they have a hell in Buddhism. Only you're not there permanently. You're just there for like 30 or 40,000 years. So, you know. But the descriptions of them are the same as, it sounds just like some, you know, fire and brimstone thing. And there are incidents in the suttas where the Buddha says, well, that person really, there's this particular king. King Ajatasattu, or Ajatasattu, who killed his father, who was the king. He was the prince, he kills his father. And the Buddha says, you know, if he, if he hadn't done that, he would have become enlightened tonight. He, he gives a Dharma talk, and the king is there, and says, if he hadn't killed his father, he would have become enlightened tonight. But unfortunately now, he's, he's created such negative karma. And then his son then winds up killing him, and the the sons keep killing the the fathers until finally the community, the country that they're in, just gets sick of them and starts another lineage of uh, kings. Well, I just guess guess I couldn't find my way to ending on a happy note. So, well, let's just cl- um, take a moment to close. And, we reflect on our good qualities. That most of us did not kill our parents. Even though we might have wanted to. And from time to time to just reflect on what it is that brings you here. 
and seeing the goodness in your own heart. The wish to grow, to be more present, to be more loving, to be more wise. This wish, this longing, this is right intention, an element of the Eightfold Path. So to take joy in your own right intention, your own wish to be free. Thank you. And um, I just wanted to mention that I appreciated there was a very nice response to my berating you about your Donna last week. Uh, and the group has gotten down to a core, and uh, I continue to s- depend upon your support. So, uh, however,